Scottish Literature in Vernon Limited's 25th anniversary year. I'm Christian Kerr. And I'm Becky Riley. Not only is it Hogmanay here in Edinburgh, but it is also the eve of the Year of Spark. Yes, February the 1st in 2018 sees the centenary of the birth of Muriel Spark, which will be marked by events, um, including an exhibition at the National Library of Scotland, a programme of broadcasting on Radio 4 and 3, and the republication of all of Muriel Spark's novels. Yes, we at Polygon are delighted to be um, the publishers at the centre of the Muriel Spark centenary celebrations, and we were publishing the centenary editions of all 22 novels, bringing them together for the first time under one publisher. Five novels are now available as we go into 2018, and then the rest of the series will be completed by September 2018. So please look forward to each and every single one of those books coming out. In this podcast, we're starting at the very beginning with Spark's first novel, The Comforters. We'll also be talking to Alan Taylor, whose memoir, Appointment in Arezzo, A Friendship with Muriel Spark, is published by Arthur Polygon. Not at all coincidentally, it will be Radio 4 Book of the Week starting on New Year's Day 2018, so be sure to tune in. Muriel Spark was born on the 1st of February 1918 in Edinburgh, and she attended James Gillespie's High School for Girls. Which very famously was the um, inspiration behind her most well-known novel, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. She had a teacher there called Miss Christina Kay who became Jean Brodie in uh, Muriel Sparks' imaginative mind much later on. But after after school, she was kind of desperate to start living. And uh, what she did instead... <laughs> and what she did for this was she, she um, made a bit of an ill-informed marriage to Sydney Oswald Spark. Um, SOS. Yes. Um, uh, went over to Rhodesia with him, discovered that their marriage was not going to be a happy one. Um, he, he himself had a lot of issues. Um, so she came back over to London during the war. Um, then after that, she um, was on the periphery of the literary scene in London for a long time. She did a lot of editorial work, proofreading work, secretarial work. She worked for the Poetry Society and edited their magazine. Yeah, and a lot of this period informs many of her novels later on. Um, She's absolutely wonderful at lampooning the world of books. (laughs) And and all its uh, frivolities. Yeah. And so we come to... Um, the period that just just before the comforters where she was in a relationship a, a collaborative a collaborative one and a personal one with a man called Derek Stanford and um, so they would write and edit books together and then at the time she was very poor rationing was still um, part and parcel of her of her life and um, she was also taken so she wasn't eating very well, but on top of that, she was also taking dexedrine to suppress her appetite. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, she converted to Catholicism around about this time too. And while she was taking this dexedrine, she was working on a book on T.S. Eliot, and she started having hallucinations that the work of T.S. Eliot was sending her secret messages and all that kind of thing. And so she had a little bit of a mental breakdown. Um, she stopped taking the dexedrine, um, thankfully, <laughs> and um, this first book of hers, this no- the novel The Comforters, is very much an exploration of that period in her life of just when she's converted to Catholicism and the character herself that she writes in The Comforters, Caroline Rose, starts hearing voices 
Um, and so both that sort of descent into madness and the conversion to Catholicism form the main themes around the first novel, The, Comf- the Comforters. Yes, which was published in 1957. Yeah. Interestingly, she wrote it in 1955 and left it with the publisher. Hmm. And the publisher was like, oh, this is a bit risky, this book, and didn't publish it until 1957. And after Evelyn Waugh had read it... Oh, he endorsed it before yeah. publication. That's yeah, because, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And then he... Can't take a risk. Can't take a risk. <laughs> and he, ended, he, he went on to write his own book about hearing voices and hallucinations and all that kind of thing because he himself had gone through a similar experience yes. as Muriel Spark did. So back to the comforters. So we have Caroline Rose, like Muriel Spark, a recent convert to Catholicism. Yep. And somebody who is in a relationship but feeling the need for a lot of space. Her and um, Lawrence, her boyfriend, are kind of in a sort of semi-separation. So Caroline has been sent to this convent from by Lawrence's mum, who has a connection with this convent, um, to recuperate and retreat. Now, retreat is a word that comes up a lot in The Comforters, um, which we can talk about later. So she, it's, but I feel like this book, this whole, the whole novel is actually an exploration of what that conversion means. Yes. Because throughout the book, you get the sense that although Caroline has decided to convert to Catholicism, she doesn't yet know what kind of Catholic she wants to be. And so there's a whole different versions of Catholicism um, done through different characters. Yep which Caroline um, pits herself against as not being that kind of person. So the very first one, the very obvious one, is Mrs Hogg, who is portrayed as this chronic, (laughs) righteous gargoyle of judgment and yes. and uh, she's a sort of matron yeah at, she is a, um at the at the retreat yeah. and is sort of uh domestic sort of manager yeah mm-hmm. and and she's very keen to have people be sort of strident catholics participatory yeah, as part- well yeah so in one of their first exchanges uh, mrs hogg says Hmm, I know your type. I got your type the first evening you came. There's a lot of the Protestant about you still. You'll have to get rid of it. You're the sort that doesn't mix. Catholics are very good mixers. Why don't you talk about your conversion? Conversion's a wonderful thing. It's not Catholic not to talk about it. And then again through the novel, she it's, it's clear too that um, Caroline is not like Helena, Lawrence's mother, yeah. who is a much is is a ch- a figure completely associated with charity, and yeah. um, um, trying to keep things nice and ordered, and and away from any sort of difficulty and contradiction. I mean, and because um, you know, right at the very beginning, Caroline talks about how Christianity is actually the weirdest of religion, the exorbitant demands of Christianity yes. she talks about, where she has a real problem with that charitable way of thinking of love thy neighbour and love your brother and mother and love everybody and be sympathetic and empathetic and, yes. and loving of everybody and, and accepting of everybody else. She thinks that is 
such a demand to make of a human being. Right. Which, you know, is, is quite understandable. Absolutely is. And that fits exactly with her idea of, you know, I want to retreat to be at peace with myself. Yeah. Um, and Helena is just, it's, it's so well captured. Yeah. The, um, so her sort of uh, dithering. Yeah. Along the lines of, I want to try and please absolutely everybody. Yeah. And Caroline keeps saying to her, please, will you get rid of Mrs. Hogg? Yeah. I don't, I do not wish to see this troublesome person. And she says, well, that wouldn't be very charitable, dear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's wonderfully like, done. It's like, especially Mrs. Hogg, when she goes on that rant about the exorbitant demands of um, Christianity, she actually ends it with, have you met Mrs. Hogg? <laughs> As if to say, how can we be charitable to everybody when there's people like her in this world? <laughs> yeah. And then she's also not like Helena's husband, Lawrence's dad, mm. um, Edwin, who is constantly on retreat, who's mm. constantly... Um, in some sort of uh, monastery or something, deep breathing and contemplating, and deep breathing and contemplating, and com- and who has completely removed himself from the living, breathing, existing world that he supposedly exists in. And the other thing that Caroline has to um, contend with in the book <laughs> is not only um, uh, um, this is this conversion and what it means to her, but Coming back from the retreat, which wasn't very successful, she then starts to hear voices. Yes. And a typewriter and voices, which seems like it's narrating her thoughts or her actions or, yeah, to her in a way that she... And especially at the beginning, she's, she she cannot understand. And that the actual... The scenes where she first starts um, hearing the voices is is really wonderfully done in that sense of of the sheer fear of feeling like you're going mad and 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 how awful it is <laughs> yes i mean it's interesting because i wonder a little bit if you spend a lot of whether if you spend a lot of time alone your own interiority yeah. just like becomes what someone's saying to you all the time yeah yeah <laughs> and um as you said the earlier she is someone who wants space yeah and then of course maybe she has too much space so the space (laughs) starts talking back (laughs) and of course Caroline is um a student of literature yeah she's she's in the middle of writing a book about the form of the novel yeah um which is hilarious the my one of my favorite bits um when Lawrence asks her how that book is going and this is just after she starts hearing the voices she says i'm having difficulty with the chapter on realism <laughs> <laughs> which is a comment on the whole book itself but is actually a real spot on sparkian um black dark humorous joke on what her state of mind is at the time as well but thankfully and quickly actually Caroline does um get used to the voices and she she understands them quite quickly as something not to be afraid of she realizes that it's a book that she's in a book and everybody else is in it and so she decides to live alongside these voices to see where the story and the book is going and there are no sort of big twists. No, right? no, this, yeah. This, this just happens as if in as if it's the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, really. Yeah. And even though it's layered and complex, 
it doesn't read like that at all. And in fact, what it does, it just sparks off your own imagination and your own thoughts as to what the purpose of fiction is and what and how novels are made and how art is made and the and the interplay between art and reality. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's brilliant. And that's such a sort of theme of Sparks novels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's connected to... Um, this question of like so many of her characters are female writers mm. um, or journalists or yeah people who are concerned with creating stories but that itself becomes a sort of social political thing as mm. well and I think she's exploring the sort of psychological and spiritual realms yeah. and all of these things um, as well as her sense of self and all of these things come together mm-hmm. um, because her her books are satirical in the sense that they not only they they seem on the surface just a sort of like comedy of manners Mm. but what she's really doing there is really cracking open social codes and social mores and so throughout this book she is constantly um, exploring the ways those the, these these things contradict each other fight each other complement each other and and so you are in a sense both discussing the the fiction of reality and the reality of fiction yes and the limitations of fiction too which also signifies the limitations of knowing reality at the same time yeah yeah so i'd like to read uh, one of my favorite bits in the comforters if that's okay while she danced with ernest who was weird to dance with, flexible, almost not there at all, so that she felt like a missile directed from a far distance. She saw Lawrence examining Eleanor's cigarette case in his nosy way and thought he keeps trying to detect whatever it is he's looking for in life. She admired his ability to start somewhere repeatedly, his courage, even if it was only in a cigarette case. Soon, Lawrence and Eleanor were dancing. Then she saw that they sat down and that Eleanor was talking in a, confi- in a confiding way. Eleanor was making small circular movements with her glass, stopping only to sigh reflectively into it before she drank, as often happens towards the end of a drinking night when a woman confines in a man about another man. Round the walls of the pylon, so far as the walls could be discerned, were large gilt picture frames. Inside each, where the picture should be, was a square of black velvet, this being the pylon's sort of effectiveness. As she smoothed her slight feet with Ernest so limp over their portion of dancing floor, Caroline caught her view of Eleanor's head, described against one of the black squares of velvet in the background, just like a framed portrait, indistinct, in need of some touching up. You could see that as an absolute judgment on Eleanor because she's been quite um, ungenerous about Eleanor during that scene mm-hmm. when they're in the club. But it's also, you could also look at it as a reflection on what art can't do, which is really know Eleanor's character and to describe it completely. Because an artist's depiction can only ever be that, a depiction, and never a complete truth unlike uh, an omnipotent or omniscient god. And she includes herself as a writer in that limitation, which is especially emphasised later on when she, as the narrator, talks of Mrs Hogg, who's been taking pelters (laughs) on her character throughout the novel. But she says that only God knows what Mrs Hogg's interior life is like. 
so this this would be a good time to talk about the nevertheless principle. Yes. The famous nevertheless principle. Yes, because I think um, the nevertheless principle is something that um, Muriel herself talked about in one of her essays about Edinburgh. Um, she considers the nevertheless principle as something um, specific to Edinburgh. I mean, I'm not sure if that's the case, but for her, the nevertheless principle was, you know, uh, it's talking about how you can hold two things at once, hold two viewpoints at once. Yes. Or more than two. Like, it's not, I, don't, I don't even think it's, it's about just about straight contradiction and the binary of that. It's about being able to hold everything yeah. at once. And really, it's about complexity yeah, in many ways. exactly. But I had sort of assumed that this was like a verbal tick of Muriel Sparks mm. and that she used the word nevertheless all the time. Right. And um, as I've been reading, I kept looking out for nevertheless and it wasn't there. <laughs> and of course, that's because Muriel Spark is far too accomplished a stylist yeah. to do something like that. Yes. And so the way it works is that... It's not really a grammatical point it's more of a, a philosophical absolutely uh, yeah. principle and and there's a sort of hinge between sentences and it implicit yeah. nevertheless yeah uh-huh. um and it's just the way the way it is so we should talk about the comic plot yeah of this novel because but, caroline's story and the psychology of that um is one thing yeah but there's another there's another whole aspect of this novel. I know. So, so you've got all these metaphysical questions going on. Yeah. But then you've also got this great romp going on as well. We've got well, the, what's really a caper. The very opening of this novel, we're introduced to, I think, one of Spark's great characters, Louisa Jepp, um, who is Lawrence's granny. Yep. I suppose, like a lot of Muriel Spark's older women, she is you know, just one of the most fun fun characters she has a twinkle in her eye she had more, like a lot of the, the old women in, in her books and in her loads of breath yeah <laughs> again with spark with her old women characters both all they, they can tell truths and or use language in a way or say things in a way that adults don't or, or are not allowed to because of social codes yes and I think that one of the one of the things that she that she associates with madness is truth. Yeah. Right. That that once all of that sort of social conditioning is sloughed off, mm. what's left is yeah. truth. And the the truth is very funny. Yeah. As well, often we get to this point where Caroline is talking to the Baron about um, about madness and tactlessness. And um, Caroline says to Billy, I'm sure, Billy, that you are suffering from the emotional effects of Eleanor's leaving you. I am sure, Billy, that you should see a psychiatrist. If what you say were true, he said, it would be horribly tactless of you to say it. As it is, I make allowances for your own disorder. Is the world a lunatic asylum then? Are we all courteous maniacs discreetly <laughs> making allowances for everyone else's derangement? <laughs> Largely, said the Baron. <laughs> I resist the proposition, Caroline said. That is an intolerant attitude. It is the only alternative to demonstrating the proposition, Caroline said. I don't know, said the Baron, really, why I continue to open my mind to you. <laughs> I love that. So in terms of uh, The Comforters as a first novel... <sighs> I know. I can't believe it's a debut novel. It's, And not only... 
not only is it amazing for a debut novel, but the fact that in this novel um, she sort of sets out her stall yeah. of what her fictional concerns are going right. to be. I mean, it seems right that at the very beginning. In this one, I mean, I was that's one of the question I was going to ask is, do you think that there are all the themes are here? Yeah, well, they are, aren't they? Yeah, you know, fate and fate and free will and society's codes and um, art, art writing. and the meaning of art and what it does and truth, the the the, the notion of truth. There, it's all here. Everything, all all the themes that she goes back to again and again yeah. in our subsequent novels is set out in the in the in the comforters. I think it's amazing for for a debut novelist to have such an assured voice, an assured notion of how she's going to be a novelist right away like that. Yeah. It's astounding. Yeah. And I think another thing that's important to sort of the another important context for this is that she was 30, well she was 36 think yeah. when she in 1955 then 37 yeah when she wrote it mm-hmm. and um it's funny because these days when we say it's a debut novel we sort of imagine it's Zadie Smith age 20 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some youngster just fresh from a college a whippersnapper <laughs> but um Muriel Spark had been thinking about what well, had been writing producing art for 30 years probably already by this point in her own in her own way and um, had really sort of served a very particular kind of apprenticeship mm. uh, before writing a novel mm. so so it it would it makes sense that this this is that so much about the novel is intentional mm. um, and it's sort of the deafness of its form and the, um, the way it packs everything in. Mm. Uh, is tremendously accomplished. In Tuscany, as the year draws to a close, it rains often and thunderously to the accompaniment of operatic flashes of lightning. Once the olives have been safely harvested, the countryside grows sombre and somnambulant. In that regard, it is reminiscent of the Scottish borders, with its dun colours, moss-covered, dry-stained dikes and isolated farms. All that's missing is the bleating of sheep and the keening cry of a solitary curlew. Late autumn was always a good time to visit Muriel and Penny, though it must be said that San Giovanni was not the warmest of houses. The rooms were mostly large and dark, and the ancient radiators struggled to maintain the temperature above freezing. The kitchen, with its soot-smeared, wardrobe-sized hearth, was the cosiest of the twenty or so rooms. Here we three would sit for hours on end as afternoon drifted towards evening. The fire was fed with wood gathered from the nearby fields and forest, which was the domain of wild boar. One December I woke to the sound of boughs cracking under the weight of snow, which was lying thick and deep. This was the Val di Chiana, as I had never seen it before. All was white save for the leaden sky from which yet more snow threatened to fall. After a few hours, the stillness was broken by the sound of a municipal snowplough grinding up the hill towards Civitella. At Penny's behest, I asked the man in charge if he would also clear San Giovanni's driveway, which he agreed readily to do. In so doing, however, 
he managed in his enthusiasm to remove a substantial layer of topsoil, which meant that when the snow melted, what had formerly been firm ground on which to park a car was now an inescapable quagmire. Those were cheery, intimate occasions with no imperative, and sometimes not even the possibility to leave the policies. As dusk fell, wine bottles replaced coffee pots, and Muriel, having stopped work for the day, could relax and unwind. How well I remember the look of concern on her face when, in the midst of a blizzard, Penny announced that we had just opened the last bottle of wine in the house. Muriel was not alone in her relief when Penny assured us that a plentiful supply remained in a cellar accessible from the outside. In the spirit of altruistic Captain Oates of the Antarctic, I volunteered to don a coat and, and fetch fresh supplies. Unlike him, I promised to make a speedy return. Well, that was a lovely section of Appointment in Arezzo, A Friendship with Muriel Spark, written by Alan Taylor, who we have here with us today. Hello, Alan. Hello. <laughs> now, we have invited you here today because you, um, you've been friends with Muriel Spark for a, quite a while now. Well, I was friends with her from about 1990 till her death in 2006. Yes. So, I guess, 16 years. Yes. Um, I feel I've become Muriel Spark. Yeah. Um, I, I am the sort of embodiment of Muriel Spark now, but without her talent. Yeah. And now, now that we come up to the centenary year in 2018, you've now written about your relationship with Spark and your relationship with her work. Yeah, and I think it would have been difficult for me to write this book um, while Muriel was still alive. Not that I think she would have been surprised by the fact that I was writing a book about her. I mean, mm. I'm a writer... And um, that's what people do. <laughs> um, but it has taken me a long time since her death to actually write it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure why, just prevarication, idleness. Right. Um, but the actual, when you sat down to write the book, um, it, the writing happened quite quickly. So it was a sort of long percolation. More well, sure, journalists a deadline, and um, <laughs> that has a sort of um, threat hanging over it. So... Yeah, it took about four months. But um, you say that was quite a short time in which to write it. I mean, Muriel wrote the Prime Minister Jean Brodie in four weeks. So, <laughs> That's um, <laughs> uh, It's quite a long time as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there was a story that um, Muriel always wrote her novels uh, on Jameson's um, notebooks. They weren't made by Jameson. Jameson, yeah. they sold them. They were uh -huh. the Bothwell Spiral notebook. Oh, Everybody okay. would remember them who... Uh, lived in Edinburgh at that time and bought the notebooks at James Thin. And the brilliance from Muriel's point of view was that she knew um, uh, by how many notebooks she'd filled how close she was to finishing a book. That in itself is a ridiculous thing to say because you think, well, OK, you can write uh, fill four notebooks, but that doesn't mean to say you've finished a book. But she seemed to think in that kind of terms. And so there was a reassurance of habit as well. Mm. You know, writers like to know which pen they're going to use, the you know, some of them are pretty phobic about the circumstances or surroundings they've got. Yeah. Um, and and Muriel, t to a degree, was a bit like that. You know, she she had a certain superstition about pens, about notebooks, about where she wrote stuff. Um, but There's I, a great photo of you in her study with her. Mm. Um, sort of under is was it under the eaves at the top of the house? Ah, uh -huh, that's under the that's in the house uh, in um, the Val di Chiana in San Giovanni. The house's name. And uh, Muriel had the study uh, with the great wooden beams there. And it was quite a small room, uh, 
probably because it would be warmer than the rest of the place. <laughs> it was easier, easier to keep warm. And um, it was crowded with books. And the table was crowded with books and papers and pens and glasses and all the paraphernalia that writers have. And, um, yeah, that was her domain most of the day. And off that room was a bedroom uh, where she slept. Um, again, with the lovely wooden beams, um, low ceiling for warmth, uh, a window and a little balcony, looking right out on the Val de Canner, right across... Um, the valley all the way to Lake Trasimeno, which mm. is, I don't know how many miles, many, many miles. Yeah. So it'd be a very beautiful bit mm. to, to sort of sit in a, a summer evening. And peaceful as well. Very peaceful. You wouldn't hear anything yeah. happening except, you know, some birds tweeting or occasionally a hunter trying to kill the birds. <laughs> and, and she had a huge TV um, so that she could uh, lie in bed uh, watching the news at night, which she did. And did she um, commentate on the news, or was she just sort of storing it away? Um, because uh, you tell a great story about um, when she came to Edinburgh mm. in 2004 and how she had stayed outside of the city mm. in the borders in Melrose, I think. Melrose, yeah. And she had purchased, made a significant purchase in a second-hand bookshop of the Reader's Digest guides to everything? Well, it wasn't... I, I, was that, I, I, was, I yeah. will take issue with the fact that it was a second-hand bookshop. Oh, was it not? Oh, <laughs> she would never have. No, no, she would go to a second-hand bookshop, but it was a new bookshop, and uh -huh. it was owned by uh, a kind of distant aunt of mine oh. uh, with a splendid name, Elizabeth Taylor. So Muriel wanted to stay just outside Edinburgh before she made the appearance at the book festival. Uh, when I arrived, she said, I've found the book I've been looking for all my life. Uh, and I thought, wow, um, you get to this age, 84, and at last you found this book. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I need to find out what it is so then I could write about it and tell people so that it might do the author some good. And she said, well, the author's um, The Reader's Digest. And the book is called How to Do Absolutely Everything or something. Isn't that great? So it was like how to change a tyre, how to change a plug, you know, how to... That is a useful book. The thing was that Muriel had no intention ever of buying a book with the idea that um, if it told her how to change a tyre, she yeah. would change a tyre. <laughs> it, it, it told her how to do it. Yeah. That was the theory. Mm -hmm. She had no intention of ever doing it. Her mother had um, taught her uh, from a very early age that if you didn't learn how to do something, you would never be asked to do it. And so she recommended that if you don't want to do ironing or dishes or peeling potatoes or whatever, don't learn to do it. Muriel certainly took that to heart. Well, good for Muriel. <laughs> I never saw her do anything practical. Yeah. But she knew the theory, so it could go into yeah. the novel. And she would always ask people. Um, she was a really good um, questioner. Mm. She was the kind of person who would ask lovely questions of people. I mean, if a woman opened her handbag, Muriel could say, do you mind if I have a look inside that handbag? <laughs> And if she could have, she would have had them empty it. Right. You know. Can I so, read your diary? Yeah. So <laughs> Wait, was it a sort of diagnostic experiment, or it was genuine, more of a genuine curiosity? I mean, uh, you can. Well, she always said that uh, nothing is wasted uh, by a novelist, and and there's there are books I could novels of hers I could point to you where um, somebody seems to empty their handbag yeah. and she describes the contents. It's of all it. like the telling detail of a. Th a, a phrase that somebody uses or a mannerism that somebody has. Yeah. And, and that's... 
that's what makes the character. That's what makes just that little tiny thing, and I, I remember a reviewer of a particular book saying, "Well, no teenager will have these things in their handbag," and I thought, "Well." When did you last ask a teenager to enter the handbag? <laughs> of course they did. And um, you could be sitting with Muriel having lunch or a drink or, or whatever, and suddenly she wouldn't be there. She wouldn't be listening to you. And you'd, she'd, she'd obviously heard something at another table, right. and suddenly her antennae was up, and she was sort of beginning to record it mentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, why don't you tell us how you met um, Muriel in the first place, What, how you sparked up your friendship to you know, coin a phrase. <laughs> yeah, um, well, she, she liked the name Spark. Uh, <laughs> it is a good name. Yeah, that was the only thing she took from her marriage, she said. Well, no, I, I was working at Scotland on Sunday at the time. I, I spent a lot of time... It was a young newspaper, uh, Scotland on Sunday, uh, when I joined it, and um, it was it was struggling. That's not to say I did anything to stop it struggling, <laughs> but it was struggling. And um, I, I had a very enlightened editor who was interested in books and literature and he encouraged me to travel around the world interviewing great writers um, and he'd read a number of these pieces and he said but there must be a great Scottish writer out there somebody must be out there who you'd really like to do and of course Muriel was that person mm-hmm. and um, I used various connections uh, to to get the interview with her she had just published at that point or was about to publish her novel Symposium, right. which I think is her 19th novel. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was arranged that I would go out there to Arezzo and meet her. And um, she and Penelope came in from the house uh, to have supper in, in Arezzo. And I don't know what it was. It's kind of... Um, it makes these things work. Chemistry, personality, mm-hmm. um, mood, uh, just how you're feeling at the time. But... Uh, there was a spark yeah. and um, I immediately liked her. I thought, um, you know, not, not only was this woman a genius as far as I was concerned, she was a very funny, witty, engaging, generous genius mm-hmm. and uh, she was glamorous, uh, she had a real sense of mischief and fun about her. Mm-hmm. She looked as if she wanted to enjoy herself <laughs> and... Um, so uh, we had lunch, uh, we had supper, and uh, that was that. They went off home, and I stayed in Arezzo and left. And then I wrote the piece, and uh, it, after it appeared, I, I got a letter from Penelope, obviously probably dictated by Muriel, with touches of Penelope, saying how much they'd enjoyed meeting, how much they'd liked the piece, and um, would I like with my family to go and look after the house for a month the following year. That's so brilliant. So it was a bit tricky, you know. I mean, I, I had to think twice at least about that. <laughs> a month in Tuscany. Uh, and so, you know, we went there. I mean, though, I had correspondence with her in between times because mm-hmm. she was helping me with a short story competition that we decided mm-hmm. to launch. And um, Was that the Macallan? That was the Macallan Scotland Sunday short story competition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a brilliant short story competition yeah. that discovered a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Michelle Faber, Ali Smith, to name but two. But... Um, so I went there for the best part of a month with the family and I think Muriel, she stuck around for a couple of days probably realising how inept we were going to be at looking after <laughs> this big house and her menagerie of animals. Right. Five cats, two huge dogs and I had no car, my wife didn't drive 
Um, so we were in the middle of nowhere with no way, no way of getting food. I think Muriel thought this was all quite amusing. But, you know, <laughs> why, how are they going to manage? Will they starve? She bought two bikes. Um, she'd bought two bikes, realising that I didn't drive. Um, but she'd neglected to get bikes with brakes. Uh, so that was a problem. Um, and so we looked after the house and... Uh, the animals and and it just sort of grew from there um mm. you know i would go out quite often to see her then with my ex-wife yeah. also or um, on my own and um i would see her in london and new york and I, when was your first introduction to muriel spark just as a writer what was the first spark novel you you read well i'm not sure about this actually right. um, <laughs> because uh the, the sort of um, madness of a Scottish education yeah. meant that I never got any Muriel Spark. No, neither did I. Um, I did get Scott and Hardy and Dickens and Shakespeare and mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff. Um, I, I, I did a six-year dissertation when I was at school on Lawrence Durrell, of all people. <laughs> and uh, just to divert, I once asked Muriel, I said, I heard you, 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 you know, you, you met Lawrence Durrell, didn't you? She said, yeah, I met him at the 1962 Writers' Conference here in Edinburgh. I said, what do you remember about him from that? She said, I remember having a bag of chips with him in Lothian Road. <laughs> that was it. But um, I think I, it was probably something like The Girls of Slender Means I right. read first, or A Far Cry from Kensington, or one of those novels, the mm-hmm. London novels, which right, I really right. like. Um, and then, of course, you read The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. People say... The, the Edinburgh of Jean Brodie and Muriel Spark mm-hmm. is no longer with us. Well, it's still clinging on. Yeah. And I know quite a lot of people in their 90s who are very spry and they're, they're smart, they're, they're showing no signs of deterioration as mm-hmm. far as I can see. Um, they, are, they have something in their DNA yeah. that um, is very Edinburgh and very Muriel Spark and very Jean Brodie. Mm. Dressing up to go to the shops and things like well, that. Well, I, I, if anybody doubts it, I suggest they go to the big Jenner's restaurant yeah. at three o'clock of oh, an afternoon yeah. and you'll find two or three hundred of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, no, so that was how I first uh, met her and then we exchanged a lot of letters and I, I, I made a a BBC uh, documentary about her right. and um, uh, there was radio programmes and all, all manner of stuff mm. uh, and occasionally I would help her do some research for the books right. um, when she needed them but the trouble of trying to research for somebody like Muriel Spark is that it wasn't a defined search so it wasn't like mm. say could you would it be possible to check such and such it, w- it would be uh, give me everything you've got on Mary Queen of Scots, or um, everything you can find on re- on the subject of redundancy. Well, right. you know these are vast subjects, <laughs> yeah. and, and she would be in search of that detail that could uh, be sort of who knows what she was in search of. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. She just read widely around mm. the subject, and mm-hmm. uh, nobody kind of knew what this was going what to book do. What was she working on that required Mary Queen of Scots? Her last book, um, The Finishing School. Right. Um, because one of the... It's set in a, a finishing school in... A creative, writer, mm-hmm. creative writing finishing school in Switzerland. And one of the students at the school is writing uh, a novel um, which is about the murder of um, uh, Rizzio ah, and uh, all about Muriel. And, and, and Muriel, uh, like all these things, had a kind of theory about uh, the, the mur- these murders. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't enough for her to say, write about Lord Lucan or Mm -hmm. um, Watergate, but without her own theories coming to the fore. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
her theory about David Rizzio, I think yeah, he was yeah. called. Um, the theory there was that he, then Darnley was murdered. Yeah. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots' husband, and Muriel's view was that it was Rizzio's brother who had um, revenged David Rizzio's murder. Right. And that by was the, killing was Darnley. The, by by yeah. killing Darnley. Yeah. Um, and of course, the David Rizzio fits so many nice. And Mary Queen of Scots, you know, Rizzio is Italian, hmm. and yeah. he was part of her Catholic coterie, and it's just sort of all perfect. Of yeah, all of that. Muriel's Spark territory. Perfect, yeah. and you can, you know, when you know her work, you mm. begin to make sense of it. Mm. I mean, she, she was working at the last, um, in her last years, last weeks, last days, um, on a on a another novel which she had called uh, or given the provisional title Destiny to oh. and um, it was about the, the, the murder of Roberto Calvi uh, God's banker who was assumed to have um, hanged himself over Blackfriars Bridge in London right. um, although some people think he was murdered whatever but Muriel wasn't uh, really interested in his story mm. he was in, she was interested in the story of his secretary uh, who had worked with um, Roberto Calvi all these years and who, when uh, he became a, the disgraced banker and uh, disappeared, uh, threw herself out of a window in uh, Rome. And so she came at things very obliquely. Um, mm. and, and she loved the whole idea that, you know, this was all tied up with the Vatican, mafia, high finance, mm. loyalty, disloyalty, betrayal all these kind of Muriel Spark subjects. Right, and it, it's everything is so interconnected and it mm. could sprawl, but it seems like her talent is to just bring yeah. it right in. Well, that's a, you yeah. can never call a Muriel Spark novel baggy. <laughs> <laughs> no, she used to say she felt sometimes that she was short-changing her readers, that she should maybe give them more words for their money, <laughs> but then she said she didn't know how to do that. But, that's the, but every word feels like it's worth a million... Bucks for you know, yeah. it, well, there's well, not a word wasted. No, you there's can not. Absolutely, get value for money. And it's you know, you read them and you can get the cadence of the sentences. Mm. And it's very difficult to, um, it's very difficult to pracy or to um, edit. Um, my wife Rosemary, yeah. Rosemary Goring, has been um, adapting a Far Cry from Kensington for Radio Four, and um, I think it's about forty or thousand words. Um, and so in a 10 part adaptation you can get around about 20,000 words so basically you're halving the book yeah. and she says it's been and she's done a lot of adaptations mm -hmm. she says it's been, been far and away the most difficult to do wow. because as you take stuff out early on yeah. it, it, it comes back to haunt you you're pulling yeah. on a thread and yeah. the whole tapestry yeah. is distorting yeah. Yeah. each piece of dialogue gives you information about the character gives you information about what's going to come next oh, and there's a word or a, yeah. a, an event or something happens or a phrase that keeps coming back yeah. and so then if not you, just piss or to copy <laughs> yeah not piss or to copy but uh, so yeah it's a wonderful book <laughs> and you see that in all all of our novels there's just elements that just repeat and repeat and repeat well she takes us from the border ballads where it's a bit like a refrain mm. and um, that it, it help keep, keeps the reader focused mm. um, it's almost a reminder to the reader saying you are paying attention now, aren't <laughs> yeah. you? You know? she, yes. she, she makes no bones about repetition other writers yeah. find, are phobic about it um, yeah. Muriel, for Muriel it was, it was part of a, a recitation mm. uh, and I think 
it works brilliantly. Mm. Yeah, it, it's only fools that don't get this. <laughs> and, and by the way, there's a lot of fools out there. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I love about um, appointment in Arezzo uh, is that it seems to be as much about her writing as it is about her life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I tend actually not to read literary biography just because sometimes it's full of details that I couldn't really care less about. Whereas I think, I think one of the things that this book does so well is um, make you want to read the novels and understand how they fitted into her life. You know, I didn't really want to write a, a literary book. Mm. I, I mean, I don't know what that means even. Yeah. I, you just want to write a well-written book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I was sort of, you know, I wanted to sort of show that writers are people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, here, here's what it's like to have befriended a, a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I had to, you know, I had to be very disciplined about it in the sense that I didn't want to write other people's opinions of Muriel Spark. Mm-hmm. This is my opinion of Muriel Spark. It's a very subjective book. Mm-hmm. It is not in the least objective. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, I didn't go looking for other thoughts although occasionally people try to encourage me to do that and I had to remind them that you know it says our friendship with this is not somebody else's views Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing vox pops Mm -hmm. Um, so there was that element to it but but the other aspect of it was that although I you know I've interviewed and met many many writers and and many of these I would say are the great writers of the 20th century but after a while, I could figure out how they did what they did. You know, I could see where they might get an idea and how they'd use that idea and how they turned it into a book. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I, I could replicate it, yeah. but I could figure out what they did. I could never figure out what Muriel did, how she transformed the things mm-hmm. she did into books mm-hmm. and how she could hold it all apparently in her head mm-hmm. so that in an incredibly short burst, four, six, eight weeks, could write a novel that, that is a sustained genius that, that reads, you know, as fresh today as it did uh, all those years ago before it was written. And so it was to sort of try to say to the reader, look, this, here she is, but, hey, she's still an enigma. Mm. She's still mysterious. She's still exciting. You know, yeah. Penelope, who lived with her all these years, you know, said to me, I think I mentioned it somewhere in the yeah. book, she says, you know, sometimes I think I never knew Muriel at all. And I think that's true of any great artist. Mm. I think something's going on with them, right. subterraneously, that yeah. we don't know. Yeah. So that's all from us in 2017. Um, We hope you've enjoyed the podcast series and I hope you'll be glad to know that we'll be bringing some more out in 2018 as well. For more details of all things Muriel Spark, though, uh, for her centenary year, please visit the Muriel Spark 100 website, which is murielspark100.com. And have a happy new year. Happy new year. Mm -hmm.